yeah, so last week I was sort of muddling through the sermon, uh, the beginning of this cold. Uh, I'm not sure if I got across the point at the end where Peter, uh, in 1 Peter 5, is, uh, is, is commenting on the glory that will be conferred on those who resist our, our real enemy, uh, the devil, and who stand firm in their faith, uh, waiting for that day when our chief shepherd appears. Um, we, we had some, things that, some good things to cover with regard to the authority of spiritual leadership in the church uh, last week, but I want to return to that same passage uh, in 1 Peter 5, same verses, 1 through 11, uh, because there's some promises there that have to do with glory that are just too beautiful to not, uh, to not look at and, and spend some, uh, some more devoted time to. So let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read again verses 1 through 11 in 1 Peter 5. <clears throat> this is God's Word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we return to these words and uh, ask that you would, you would show us your glory. Uh, show us the glory of God in the face of Christ, we pray in His name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to really zero in on verse 4 where Peter states that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Um, that, that promise in particular is made to church leaders, those who have spiritual authority, but it applies more broadly because there's a couple other places here where, where Peter mentions the glory that all of us um, will um, <laughs> remarkably receive if our, our faith is in Christ. And, uh, and so to, in order to appreciate that and to understand more of what Peter's saying, let's, let's back up a little bit about how we were made for glory and that, as he says in verse 11, we're called to glory. There's a glory in our past. There's a glory in our future. 
uh, and, and that certainly has implications for our present. But let's, let's start with uh, Peter's appeal uh, to glory, this, this recognition that we all want glory because we're made for it. You know, when, when Peter's explaining uh, these verses in relation to how the local church should operate and how those who are in authority, you know, exercise that authority as examples of the chief shepherd, they're, they're going to be reminders of, to the church of Jesus. And the church uh, is called to actually be subject to their authority and, and so on. In the midst of that whole discussion, look at verse 1. Peter's writing as one who is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. In verse 4, he talks about how when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And in verse 10, he He's appealing to those who are suffering, saying, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So three places in these 11 verses, Peter's directly appealing to the fact that there's a glory that's awaiting God's people. There's actually a fourth place too. He doesn't use the the, the word glory, but he talks about in verse 6, how those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God at the proper time will be exalted by God. They'll be lifted up. Uh, They'll be glorified. So Peter's appeal for glory uh, is all throughout these verses. Uh, It's not unique to Peter. Peter's not the only Biblical author who appeals to glory as a, a way to motivate God's people to persevere, to, to be holy, to pursue Christ and follow him. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have to just go to Peter and go to the rest of the Bible. But, you know, there's something else here. You don't just have to go to the Bible. You know, if you're new to the Bible or new to the church or whatever, you get this. This isn't unique to, to the church. The appeal to glory is everywhere. It's everywhere. Everywhere you go, people are appealing to glory. Who doesn't want to be exalted? Who doesn't want to have victory? Who doesn't want uh, to be acknowledged? This is universal. Glory appeals to all people, and that's why Peter's appealing to it. You and I want glory. We don't just want it. Like, we desperately want it. We desperately want glory because we were made for it. We attach ourselves uh, to, to, to sports figures, to teams, because we vicariously want to enter into some of their victorious glory. Um, you know, people pay uh, 10 bucks a pop for a ticket at Zeus because they somehow want to get in on, you know, for those two hours, they want to experience a little bit of the glory of that hero's victory at the end of that movie. Or we pay 100 bucks a pop, you know, for a ticket. Uh, to go see our favorite actor or actress or band or singer or whoever because we just want to be encapsulated in the glory of what's happening on that stage. And those who can afford it, don't blink an eye to pay $1,000 a ticket to go experience, to immerse themselves, like literally, immerse themselves in the glory of snorkeling among a coral reef and the beauty that's swimming all around them. Or to go hike, you know, an alpine peak and to just breathe in that glory and take in that glory with our eyes. So, like, we just go to all the ends of the earth 
uh, to experience glory. We're made for this. We so long for this. We so desperately want it because glory is beauty. Glory is victory. Glory is acceptance. Glory is success. Glory is confirmation. It's commendation. It's recognition. Glory is luminous. Glory is opulence. Glory is being the center of attention and being the object of affection. And I don't know anybody that doesn't want that. Because glory is the opposite of shame. And shame is is going down to defeat. And shame is feeling ugly. Shame is feeling rejected, condemned, isolated, cast out, ignored, despised, and forsaken. Shame is our greatest fear. And every single person in this room is running from shame and running toward glory in a myriad of different ways. You know, it looks different for each person, but Shame is what everyone in this room is running from and glory is what every one of us is running toward. And that's because we're made for, for glory. We weren't made for shame. Shame is a result of sin and the fall and the disgrace of that, but all of us want glory because it reminds us. It gives us what one author called an echo of Eden. It reminds us of what we were made for, what was in our past, what's in our spiritual DNA. It's written on our souls. Like in the Psalms, in Psalm 8, it says that... Um, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And we, we deeply resonate with that. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis 1. Genesis is the first book in your Bible. Genesis 1 is the first page. Not hard to find. Uh, open to Genesis 1 because I want you to see something here that our, um, our Bible publishers and Bible translators want you to see in, uh, in the grammar, uh, in, in the prose versus the poetry of Genesis 1. And this gives us another clue into the glory uh, that is ours by virtue of being made and created in the image of God. In verse 26, God said, let us make man, or Adam in, uh, in Hebrew, it's you know, where we get the proper name, Adam. Uh, let us make man in our image. Listen for the word image. You're going to hear it three times. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. All right. So you heard the word image three times. You know, a lot of Hebrew poetry is based on repetition, so there's some poetic things going on here. You also heard the word created in verse 27. You can see the word created is, uh, is there three times, again, for uh, poetic repetition. But there's something even um, more significant about verse 27. Do you see how it's set apart? It's not like the other verses in Genesis 1. It's, it's indented, and it's, it's its own little stanza. Because that's a clue, right? That this verse is different from the prose of the rest of the chapter. It's a particular kind of poetry. It's a chiasm. Uh, it has to do with its structure. But more than that, it's a song. 
that man and woman were so glorious at creation that they merited a song in heaven. This is the glory of man and woman in the, made in the image of God. So that's what we were made for. And we haven't forgotten that, no matter whether you walk with Jesus or whether you, you're sort of figuring that out or investigating that or whether you don't think God exists at all. That hunger for glory is there because it's in your spiritual DNA, whether you acknowledge it or not. And, and what Peter's doing by appealing to that is he's, he's setting us up, right, for this, this statement about when the chief shepherd appears, that there's a day coming when glory will be bestowed upon the sheep. And in verse 11, he says that you're called to this. This is in your future. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been called to his, Jesus' eternal glory, the, his eternal glory in Christ. Um, I know that in verse 4, this unfading uh, crown of glory is, uh, is, give, is, is spoken in reference to the spiritual leaders in the, in the churches that Peter's addressing. But, but um, that's not so specific to spiritual leaders as it turns out because James speaks to a crown of glory and Paul talks about a crown of glory. And listen to how they're uh, addressing this. In James 1, uh, the apostle says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. If you love him, God has promised you a crown of life, a crown of glory. And Paul in his second epistle to Timothy says in chapter 4, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And, by the way, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Then you, like Paul, look forward to a crown of righteousness, a crown of glory. So Jesus himself gives us a picture of what this day is going to be like, what this bestowal of glory really is like when he comes again, when the chief shepherd appears, right? This is all about verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears. And Jesus sets it up like this in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, remember the chief shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, huh? (laughs) That's that's the abbreviated uh, version. Uh, they're, They're pretty dumbfounded, right? Here's the extended version. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or 
naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, meaning make no mistake. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Can you imagine the sensation that the sheep are feeling at this moment? Can you imagine standing before the Lord of glory, sitting on his glorious throne, and having your life laid open before him, having all of your thoughts laid bare, having all of your words, you know, on record, to stand before him, have your life weighed in the balance, and then actually beyond all hope, and beyond your shame, beyond my shame, to actually receive his blessing and his commendation. Can you imagine what that moment is going to be like? Other parts of, of Scripture, not, not necessarily in this parable, but, but other parts of Scripture explain to us that actually what, what's going to happen to us is that when Jesus says, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. By implication, what he also is going to say is that, and I will do it to you. Because you welcomed me. And now I'm welcoming you. And you fed me. And you gave me something to drink. And now I am laying before you the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come and feast. I was naked. And you clothed me. And now I want to give you a robe of righteousness. I was sick. And now I will heal you of all your infirmities. I will make straight what is crooked in you. All the broken places in you are going to be repaired and restored. And you were in jail, you were guilty, and yes, the verdict had been reached, but I am coming to you, I am delivering you, I am emancipating you, I am justifying you, you are not guilty anymore. And Jesus says, I will do for you what you did to me. Can you imagine the glory of that moment? When beyond all hope, you and I might receive the king's glory. That bestowal of glory? Can you imagine being invited into sharing anything greater? Is there any glory on the face of this earth that can be greater than that eternal cosmic declaration that you are blessed? C.S. Lewis, 70 years ago, preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. It's the best sermon I've ever read. Uh, I can't hear it because it wasn't recorded, but it just... It, draws me again and again. I read it over and over and again. And in that sermon, C.S. Lewis says, glory means good report with God. Acceptance by God. Response. Acknowledgement. And welcome into the heart of things. Into the singularity of reality. Like at the center of the universe. You are welcome there. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last and we will be welcome. So what's, what's actually pretty remarkable about this description of glory that Jesus is describing is that none of the sheep were expecting this to, based on their good works. They weren't, 
standing around thinking, well, of course, you know, hey, I'm a good person. Uh, I, I fill flood relief buckets. I help with the food drive. I help with foster kids, you know, blah, blah, blah. God owes me. Naturally, he's going to glorify me. That's not where they're thinking at all. They're shocked. They're overwhelmed. None of, not, none of this presumption. They're just kind of like going, oh my gosh, what the heck is happening? And they're surprised by the welcome that they receive. At the same time, Jesus isn't like uh, our conventional wisdom. He, he, he doesn't drink the Kool-Aid of our culture. Uh, instead, Jesus um, doesn't fill our minds with the popular notion that God just rewards everybody indiscriminately with glory no matter how they live their lives. There really is an eternal consequence for our choices, for our words, for our actions. Eternal glory or eternal shame. Jesus continues. He says, then the king will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. I mean, that's, that is the curse. To hear Jesus say, depart from me. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. You can hear their defiance, right? And then the king will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And of course, by implication, and I will not do it to you. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, into eternal glory, into an eternal welcome. Can you, can you imagine the shame that the goats experienced at that moment? Can you, can you imagine the, the terrifying understanding that they were not simply, uh, to, to borrow the phrase, they were not simply on the wrong side of history. They are on the wrong side of eternity. Forever. This is, this is what Jesus is cautioning us against. Don't waste your life. Don't make the wrong choice. Don't spend your life on your behalf. Spend your life on behalf of God's glory. Spend your life on behalf of your neighbor. The goats are a warning to us who, who, who tenaciously hold on to, and rightly so, tenaciously hold on to the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, that, that Jesus alone saves us, not, not by our works, not, so that no one can boast. Like, 
All of that's true, right? But this faith that we're saved by, this faith alone that we're saved by, cannot remain alone. That's what the sheep and the goats are telling us. It must be accompanied by proof that this faith that we, that we believe in Jesus isn't just theory, it's not just words, but it's, it's a living faith. It's a visible faith. It's full of fruit. It's full of love. That's what saving faith is. It's alive, and it reminds people of the kingdom of God. So nobody should have to guess, you know, especially in our circles where we, we, we say these things and we believe that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus' works. We're saved by trusting in him and, 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 and trusting ourselves to him and his work on the cross. And yet that faith becomes visible. Nobody should have to guess whether or not you're a Christian. It should be completely evident. It should be evident based on our obedience, right? It should be evident based on our, our feeding those who are naked, our feeding, uh, uh, feeding those who are hungry, our, our clothing those who are naked, visiting the sick, visiting the prisoners, you know, showing acts of compassion and hospitality, caring for the orphan and the widow. Our faith should be visible by our obedience. But, but also, let's be honest, we fail at those things. And none of us does those perfectly. And so we have to bring repentance alongside our, our obedience so that our, people can see our faith by our repentance too because when we fail, we don't just sweep it under the rug and think, oh, well, that, you know, people just need to put up with me. That's just me, whatever. No, we apologize. And we repent. And we make our faith visible and audible because we own our stuff. We own our mistakes. We don't let somebody else take the fall for it. We don't pretend that, you know, well, I need to pre- preserve my good record. No. People need to see our, our, the work of Christ to sanctify us and make us holy. Amen, to be sure. But they also need to see the beauty of the gospel and how Jesus forgives our sins. He forgives my sins. He forgives your sins. People need to see our repentance and they need to see our forgiveness. If somebody sins against you and they ask for your forgiveness, show them your forgiveness. Just as you've been forgiven. Because a faith without works, a faith without fruit, a faith without love, a faith without forgiveness is dead. And it will not save you. Nobody can hope for glory apart from it. But let us also affirm, right, that the, this parable of the sheep and the goats is not, not for us to go out and think that we can earn our way to glory, that we can check enough boxes off and fill enough buckets and fill enough bags and care for enough kids that, you know, God owes us glory. That's just not how it works. We can't impress Jesus. None of us can impress Jesus. All we can do is reflect him. It's to be his faithful, flawed image bearers, and remind people of the difference the gospel's made in our lives. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to exchange his glory for our shame. He took that crown of thorns on his head in order to bestow on us a crown of glory. One of the commentators I was reading this week said, Jesus bore the crown of humiliation so that we may wear the garland of glory. I love that. That's exactly what happened on the cross. That, his cross is the evidence 
that he was willing, not just willing, but loving enough to take on our guilt, to take on our sin, to take on our defeat, to take on our lovelessness, to take on our rejection, to take on our loss, to take on our shame. He took it on himself. And in exchange for that, his resurrection is the evidence that he offers us his victory, his acceptance, his righteousness, his welcome, his, accept, his glory, right? All of that is, is tied into his, his resurrection, his glorious, I mean, boy, you've never been to a concert like the resurrection. You've never seen a coral reef like the resurrection. Nothing compares. So repenting of our sin, trusting ourselves to the one who loved us and gave himself for us, just simply by faith that Jesus did it in my place. Believing in him is how we are restored to what God intends us to be. How we become new creations. Not perfect. Not yet. But improving and growing as we follow Jesus. As we receive his call to eternal glory. As we move into our future. As we we receive what he's preparing for us. And that's what he tells us in verses 10. That's what Peter tells us, right? In verses 10. And 11. Two, two applications here. Um, so first of all, you see that those who uh, are restored uh, and confirmed and strengthened and established are those who have clued into and embraced by faith this glory that Jesus offers us. So that's the picture of what's going to happen when the chief shepherd appears. Every single person who is blessed and who receives that glory is going to be restored confirmed, strengthened, and established. Everything that's wrong with us is going to be mended. He's making us new. So, by implication, we're doing this series, right, called Our Good Shepherd, meaning that it's one thing for us to, as, as sheep to say Jesus is our good shepherd and we, we, we are blessed in all these beautiful ways vertically in our relationship with him. But Jesus himself did not want us to be content just to live on the vertical. He gave us the church, and he gave us spiritual leaders in our lives. He gives us elders, he gives us deacons, he gives us Bible study leaders, he gives us disciplers, mentors, men and women who we look up to, who we follow as they follow Christ. And Jesus says, I want you to be blessed by them too. I want you to be shepherded by them too, horizontally, not just vertically. So wouldn't it make sense if when our chief shepherd appears, that these promises in verse, verse 10 are going to come true, that will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established, if that's what's going to happen when the chief shepherd appears, should that be happening in our relationship with those who mentor us? Shouldn't that be happening in our relationship with spiritual leadership? So if you have healthy spiritual leadership, guess what? You get in on a little bit of that glory. You get in on a little bit of that blessing. Um, you get in on a reminder of who Jesus is, who blesses us, who bestows glory upon us. Like, um, let me ask you this. If you were to go and uh, and be a fly on the wall at a gathering of Christian leaders, maybe they're pastors, maybe they're Bible study leaders, maybe they're, you know, just, I don't know, people who you respect and they're all sitting in a circle having a conversation. If you were to be a fly on that wall, what would that conversation sound like? If you were to, Join Kyle and me on the third Tuesday of every month at Church on the Hill for our monthly pastor's lunch. 
what would you hear? Hopefully what you would hear is a bunch of pastors kind of competing with one another to bless each other, to encourage each other, to confirm, strengthen, and establish one another. Hey, good job. Keep it up. Persevere. Tell me what's good about your ministry. What, how is God blessing you? How is he putting wind in your sails, you know? And uh, wow, that's fantastic. Good for you. Let me pray and give thanks. Hopefully that's the kind of conversations you're going to hear. Hopefully what you're not going to hear. And I wish this, I wish we were speaking hypothetically. But I go to gatherings of Christian leaders and it's sort of like, well, tell me about what's going on at your church. Oh yeah? Well, this is how many people are coming to my church. And this is how many downloads I've got of my sermon. And this is how many, you know, conferences I've been invited to speak at. And it just becomes this bad competition. Not a competition to build one another up, but a competition to kind of build myself up at the expense of my brother. So when you're in a relationship with Christian leaders, you know what you should be getting from healthy Christian leadership? A reminder of Jesus who restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. So when you're around a healthy leader or just around a healthy Christian, you should feel built up. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, for this reason I write these things so that when I come to you, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority, but uh, that, that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Authority and leadership is given to build up the saints, not to tear them down. When you're around a Christian leader, you should feel better. You should feel blessed. You should feel reminded of the gospel. That doesn't mean, right, like when Jesus was around people, it doesn't mean they didn't come away going, oh, you know, um, well, that's a pretty good reminder of how I can do better. <laughs> you know, he would, he would challenge them. He would tell them the truth, but it was always with grace, grace and truth. He would rebuke them, but he would encourage them so that nobody went away, you know, feeling beat up. They went away feeling blessed. And that's how the church leadership should function, that we're simultaneously disrupting and enticing uh, the sheep. Lastly, Peter says that after you've suffered a little while, you, know, you get this calling into this eternal glory in Christ. And, you know, here's, here's the, oh, man, we got to talk about suffering. Okay. Well, yeah, you can't get around it. Um, we can't do an end run around suffering. It, it's a prerequisite to glory. Just like crucifixion is a prerequisite to resurrection. We've all got some dying to do. We've all got some suffering to do. Suffering is not glorious. Suffering feels like defeat. Defeat is not glorious. Sickness is not, is not glorious. Um, rejection is not glorious. Persecution is not glorious. Feeling outside and isolated is not glorious. There isn't a soul here who can't relate to suffering. There's nobody here who's not suffering. Some of you are suffering an, an awful lot. Karl Marx once called religion the opiate of the masses, right? And a bunch of people agreed with his sneer. Because the, the logic was that, okay, religion is designed to keep people who are suffering in their place. It's to give them this carrot, to dangle a carrot at the end of the stick saying, hey, hang in there, you'll get your pie in the by and by. Um, just, you know, put up with a little bit more suffering so that those in power could abuse can, those in, under their authority and so on. And so 
you know, Mark said, hey, rise up. Don't, don't, don't take this anesthesia anymore. Um, and let's, let's do something about our suffering. So, all right, I commend the heart to do something about the suffering, but he had it all wrong when it comes to Christianity. It's not to say that there aren't those who abused that power and wanted to keep people under their thumb and keep them suffering, but that is not the gospel. It's anything but. Because the glory that the gospel is telling us about is the glory that, yes, awaits us in the future, but you and I do not have to wait to receive that glory. You and I do not have to wait until heaven to experience the fact that we are loved now. The glory of God's love for us can be something we can experience now. You and I do not have to wait for heaven to be accepted now. To be welcomed now. To be adopted into his family now. To to participate in the victory of Christ now. You are not a loser. You're not ugly. You're not defeated. You're not rejected. You're not isolated. You are embraced and you are welcomed now. And that is glorious. Welcome. Welcome now into the glory that awaits us. Exponentially perfected in the future to be sure. But absolutely to be experienced right now. And secondly, you know, as an opiate, um, the assumption is that religion is just propaganda. It's propaganda, it's made up, it's sort of theoretical, it's not real. But the gospel is news. The gospel is good news of some, an event that happened, a person who, who lived 2,000 years ago off the coast of the Mediterranean, and Jesus came and he was full of glory, full of grace and truth. And we beheld that glory and we said, wow, who is this man? Because he's unlike any other man who's ever lived, right? Except for Adam and Eve before their fall. Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve fell from glory. And Jesus was the true humanity that God intended us to embrace all along. And even as the perfectly glorious human being, simultaneously perfectly God, he went to a cross and he died. He died for our sins and he was raised and he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. That's all news from 2,000 years ago. It's real, it's factual, historical fact. But you know what? His return is a future fact. It's, it's not historical, it's futural, but it doesn't make it any less real. The return of our chief shepherd to bestow glory on the sheep is more real, more sure than tomorrow's sunrise. More sure than the turkey on your table on Thursday. He will come again. He will give us glory. It is written, C.S. Lewis again, it is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, 
but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his child. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. Let me pray for us. Father, would you just please expand our our minds and our souls and our hearts to, to better anticipate the glory that awaits us by grace through faith in your Son. And Lord, help us to appreciate and experience that now in the present, to know that we're loved and accepted and feasted and welcomed and our healing has begun and our Our emancipation has been declared. Lord, all of these blessings are ours because of Jesus. They're available to anybody here because of Jesus. And Lord, would you make us agents of that blessing and reflections of that glory more and more so that our neighbors and the nations can see it in us so they can know it's real. And Lord, would you whet our appetites more and more for that day. Lord, make us less and less interested in the false glory that this world promises and more and more um, more and more in love with the glory more and more longing for the glory that awaits us please be pleased with the rest of this worship Lord um, take this second offering and use it for your good and for your, uh, your glory for the good of, of uh, children uh, who need to be loved need to be reminded that you love them we pray in Jesus name